prayers. But we begin in chapter 18, verse 1, with, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go up, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. But you have to remember the context, because the chapter before this, in 1 Kings 17, God had sent Elijah the prophet to tell Ahab, There will be no rain upon the land until my word. And we saw when Elijah said this, this was not something he came up with. This wasn't his idea of how to punish Israel for their idolatry. Rather, this is what God had promised would be the curse if Israel turned from him and worshipped idols. Israel knew of this curse, and thus, a couple kings before this, King Solomon, when he dedicated the temple in his prayer, 1 Kings 8, 35 and 36, he said, When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. So the time has come when Elijah is being sent back by God to pray that the rain may come again. And as Elijah comes back, we learn that the drought's been very severe. So severe that Ahab was just talking to his servant Obadiah to go with him and to look for water. And sorry, more specifically for grass for their animals. And yet while Obadiah is a servant of Ahab, the author then shows us that more he is a servant of God. That is what his name means. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. And we're told in verse 3 that he feared God greatly. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I should let you know that's a compliment. That's saying, this is a good man. Today, someone might hear, they fear God and go, ooh, I'm sorry they do that. We should help them know they shouldn't fear God. Well, no. In the Bible, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the way you orient your life in the correct way. It's living your life with God being the center and everything revolving around Him. It's when His opinion and His thoughts matter to you more than any other person's or group's thoughts or opinions. And we see this worked out in Obadiah's life because when Jezebel the queen, so also his master, starts killing the prophets of God, he takes a hundred of them and he hides them in two groups of fifty in caves. And we're not told how he did this, but this must have been a major task to keep this undercover, to keep them fed. They've been in a drought for three and a half years, and yet he is every day getting enough food and water to keep alive 100 prophets. And yet Obadiah resourcefully, and probably very costly to himself financially, kept these prophets of God Alive. This is that good fear of God that knows my master Jezebel will kill me if she finds out, but I don't care because I fear God more, and so I will obey him. So Ahab commands him, Obadiah, I'm going to go one direction, and you go the other, and let's find grass for our animals. And so they go in opposite directions, but Obadiah finds more than just grass. He finds the one by whose word the grass has not been allowed to grow. He finds, or more specifically, Elijah finds him. And Elijah tells him, Go, tell your master Ahab, I returned. And yet Obadiah is afraid because he says, Look, 
Don't you understand what's been going on? We've looked everywhere. And Obadiah would know since he's the main servant. We've looked everywhere for you. And when we tell Ahab, nope, that country said he's not there. They, we send back and say, they better swear by God he's not there. Because if he's there, we're going to let him have it. And Obadiah goes on, look, I know you. You're the one who comes in, says no rain, then you're gone. I'm going to go back to King Ahab and say, you know what? <laughs> you wouldn't believe what? I saw Elijah today. He said, really? Well, why didn't you bring him to me? Well, um, he's going to see you. And Obadiah fears. And he says, this isn't fair. I've been serving. Don't you know I've been keeping these prophets of God alive? And Elijah calms his fears and says, don't worry. I will see Ahab today. And they do meet that day. And it's interesting. They fit. They go aside with all the normal pleasantries and formalities we have. You know, when we talk about China or Russia, our presidents will often have very strong words. They'll often condemn many of their actions. And then they meet them. And they shake hands and they say very pleasant things and they pose in front of cameras with them. Yet when Elijah and Ahab meet, they have these pleasantries. Hey, O troubler of Israel. The other responds, nope, I'm not the troubler. You are. Wow, what a nice greeting they have for each other. Now, I don't think Ahab recognized the language he was using. But the language he's using is Old Testament language for God's curses coming upon them. He warns the nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 6 as they are coming into the promised land. He says, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you've devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble. It's the same Hebrew word upon it. Then when Achan refuses to listen to this and takes gold, Joshua rebukes him in Joshua 7.25. Why did you bring trouble? The exact same Hebrew word, on us. The Lord bring trouble, same word, on you today. And Elijah is making clear to Ahab, the troubler is the one who brings God's punishment because they've forsaken God's law. You're the troubler of Israel. You're Achan. You're the reason the nation is in a drought. Ahab is having the issue that many of us have. We want to look to any other excuse for our problems instead of looking in the mirror and going, that's the problem. I was a math teacher for six years, and at times I'd have to give failing grades. And at times the students would come up and go, why are you failing me? And I would have to say, I'm not failing you. I'm just recording your failing. You're the one who's failing. All I'm doing is marking down what you're doing. Don't shoot the messenger. You're the one doing it. And that's Ahab. He doesn't want to look in the mirror and go, I'm breaking God's law. I'm the one who, as the leader, is bringing sin upon this nation. No, no, it's the messenger. Elijah, you're the one. No, it's Ahab, not Elijah. Well, once they've had their nice chit-chat, Elijah gets to the main issue. He says, look, Ahab, you need to gather all Israel and all 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who sit at Jezebel's table. Now, that's rather amazing when you consider it. 850 prophets subsidized by the government. Jezebel wants idolatry. She is doing everything in her power to encourage it, even to kill the prophets of God. 
Jezebel and also Ahab are deeply committed to this. But before we get go on and get to the well-known start of the story, I wanted to kind of stop and notice three implications or applications from this first portion. First, I wonder if you've noticed throughout the Old Testament how God often puts his people in very important positions of leadership. In the Old Testament, Joseph becomes second command in Egypt. Daniel becomes second in command in Babylon. Mordecai becomes second in command in Persia. And here, Obadiah is seemingly second in command of the wicked nation of Israel. Paul will even write in Philippians 4.22 to encourage or to welcome the brothers who are of Caesar's own household. God had placed believers in Caesar's own house. I think realizing that can help us to consider what about those Christians who are serving in evil governments or evil political parties? Can a Christian serve there? And as a country, maybe even our country, goes farther and farther to ungodliness and promoting sin and encouraging wickedness, maybe even in other nations, people should be asking, well, can a Christian serve in a military that encourages sin? Can we serve for a government that promotes ungodliness? And we need to see in Scripture, time and again, God has used godly people in sinful places. Yes, you can serve in those places, just like Obadiah and Joseph, and we could go through all of the people again that God has placed there. Now, all of those people at times stood up and said, we will not do this. There are lines in the sand. Every person needs to draw. But yet, you can serve within a wicked place without being part of the wickedness yourself. If you read history, you can read of people in communist China, high ranks in Nazi Germany, high ranks who did their best to be there and not help the regime as much as they could while still trying to subvertly help God's people. Second, I think closely related is I hope this I think this passage by reminding us of Obadiah shows us that you can serve God in many ways. As we read this, we often focus on Elijah and rightly so, but Obadiah was just as much serving God. You know, we often think from this passage, go be an Elijah, go stand up for the Lord. Well, yes, there should be Elijahs and maybe that's God's call on your life. But Obadiah was standing up for the Lord in a quiet way. I doubt he was doing the same thing Elijah did because that wasn't his calling, but he was still serving the Lord. You can serve the Lord as a prophet or priest and you can serve the Lord as a public servant. You don't need a ministry position, I put that in quotes, to serve the Lord. And third, we see three responses that Christians can have when a nation turns against God's people. Like Elijah, you can flee and go to another nation. That can be a legitimate option. Second, you can do like the prophets and stay in the nation and just go into hiding. Or third, you can be like Obadiah and live in the nation, try to fly under the radar while still being willing to engage the people and to serve, though not serve the sin. And sadly, Christians throughout time and throughout places have had to consider these options. As governments have become more hostile, they have to say, do we need to leave the country? Do we need to go into hiding? Do we need to continue but be very wise and maybe wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove 
in how we live. And we should be quick to be gracious and slow to condemn. Now, could you sin in any one of those? Yes, you could sin in fleeing a country. You could sin in hiding. You could sin by being too much helping the evil government. But we need to recognize that God has used people to do all three of those. Even today, Christians are having to think through some of these decisions. And so we need to recognize God's plan to work through various means in people's life. The Lord willing, most of us won't have to make those choices, but times are getting stranger and many of us might have to. But let's move on to the battle we see between Baal and Yahweh. It's interesting, for someone who often won't submit to God, Ahab is quite obedient in this passage. Elijah says, go get the prophets of Baal, go get the people of Israel, and he does. Now we're not told why the prophets of Asherah don't show up, but they are in no show at this contest. And then Elijah makes real clear while he's there, he says to the people of Israel, basically stop trying to ride the fence, stop waffling, stop trying to serve Baal and also serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve. He's saying what James will later say in James 1, don't be a double-minded man, or what Jesus will say in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. And so Elijah is calling them for undivided devotion and love to God. Elijah then says, look, I'm the only prophet of Yahweh left. Oh, hold on. There's a hundred. Is Elijah lying? Well, he could be, or it is that he actually is the only one left there that day on the battlefield, so to speak. Or it also would kind of make for an interesting pause in what he's trying to say, except for those hundred that Obadiah is hiding and Obadiah is going, why are you saying that? I didn't want that to be known. Now I'm going to die if this doesn't work out. How about you just say, I'm the only one left. It's a secret. Nonetheless, I think Elijah knew that and he was just speaking rather, look, I'm the only one here. There's 450 of them right there and he goes on and says look let's have a contest let's get two bulls we'll both set up an altar we'll both have everything set up and yet we're both going to miss one ingredient fire and we'll see who can have their sacrifice to their god which one will win whichever one can bring the fire he is god now elijah's strategy here is very important because he wants to make sure at the end that no one can claim eh, that was unfair we probably all played a game with someone and you beat them fair and square and at the end they say well, well, well that wasn't fair you only won because well this was your court you're used to your basketball hoop well, mine bounces different on the rail I would have won if we were at my court well this actually is Baal's court, so to speak, the Assyrian kings called Mount Carmel the mountain of Baal. Well, you won because I had this junky, no good equipment, and you had the Nimbus 2000. You just had the better one. It's not fair. No, actually, Elijah lets them pick which bull they wanted first. You want the better bull? You want the better wood? You could have it. You pick first. You get to pick the equipment you want. Well, you won because we were, you know, we had some people sick and we didn't have many subs. We were worn out. Nope. There's 450. One. 451. You have all the people you need. Well, you won because you picked the game that I'm no good at. If we'd played my game, 
I would have won. But we picked the game. You always win, and that's why you won. Well, actually, no, and wrong again, because the Syrians depicted Baal, the weather god, with a lightning bolt. The contest is the exact thing that Baal should be able to do. And so there is being set up by Elijah a competition that in no way can anyone say, stack deck, unfair, let's run it again when the odds are on our side. No, all the odds, humanly speaking, are on their side. And the only reason Yahweh will win is if he is God. Elijah wants it to be publicly, clearly, unarguably clear who is God. And so the people say, that's great. Let's do it. And yet I wonder for some of you, you're going, but this is dumb. I mean, the prophets of Baal, they have to know Baal's fake. They, they, they can't do this. And yet I don't know why we say that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that false gods are empowered by demons. If you read in Exodus, when Moses, through God's power, leads Israel out of Egypt, what happens when they start having the plagues? Well, the first couple ones, the Egyptian sorcerers, the Egyptian magicians can actually duplicate. They can replicate them just like Moses can. False gods, false demons are real. Now, I'm not saying there's any other God and that there's some kind of contest where these deities battling it out. I'm saying that due to demonic powers, they influence, they empower false gods. And so people at times can go, this has power. And it does, but that power is always on God's leash. And so the battle does ensue. And you know what happens. The prophets of Baal begin and they have morning to noonday and they're going and uh, there's nothing. And so Elijah starts mocking him. Well, maybe, maybe your God's thinking. You know, your dad, he's there reading that book or watching his show, and you're like, Dad, hey, Dad, woo! Oh, wait, oh, oh, yeah, what? Maybe Baal's just in a deep thought. Or maybe he had to go to the bathroom. Maybe he just, you know, is out of, out of service. Or maybe he's on vacation. Or maybe, you know, he's just taking a little nap. You know, maybe you need to wake him up. And the prophets of Baal, then they start to cut themselves. They cut their bodies so they're bleeding. And while we laugh at Elijah's questioning, there's nothing humorous about these way these men are literally destroying their own bodies, thinking that somehow this is pleasing to a God. And yet, what does it say? They continued, but no voice, no answer, no one paying attention. Then it's Elijah's turn and he goes and repairs the altar of Yahweh that was torn down he does this first by getting 12 stones depicting the 12 tribes of Israel he then has an unusual design change for this altar he builds a three and a half gallon trench around it and then he puts the wood and the bowl on top and then he adds another odd element he pours four jars of water on top and then he does it three times now, you don't have to be a Boy Scout to know his fire-starting merit badge is in serious jeopardy. This is not how you start a fire. And yet, he's doing this on purpose. He's, one, having these symbols of 12, 12 stones, and then four jars three times. That's 12 times of water. To remind them, who are y'all? 
people of Israel, where did y'all even get your name? God called you Israel. Why are you 12 tribes? Because God gave you 12 tribes. Return to the Lord who called you. And why the water? Well, because he wants to make clear again that only God could do this. Consider also the cost. A three and a half year drought. And he's saying, let's pour some water on top. I'm sure they're going, water? I mean, Elijah, we know you've been away for three and a half years, but do you know what's been going on around here? We're in a drought. We don't pour water on the stuff we're about to sacrifice, especially not when we don't have that much water. Another, 12 times? This seems rather foolish. And yet Elijah is showing God's power. And then what does Elijah do? Well, he doesn't dance. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't do anything but get on his knees and pray. To cry out that says, Lord, you are God. Remind them I'm your servant and turn the heart of these people back. And God immediately answers by sending fire from heaven and consuming, well, consuming everything. Not just starting a fire that then smolders and kind of builds. Everything, gone. No stones, no water, no bull. Everything is consumed. You know, this has happened a couple times before at least the fire coming down in Leviticus 9. They had just built the tabernacle and they had the first day of atonement. And Moses and Aaron set it up and then it says, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When Solomon dedicated the new temple, it tells us in 2 Chronicles 7, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You know, the fire coming down was God's clear picture. I am approving of this. I approved of it in the tabernacle, then in the temple, and now here with Elijah. And so what do the people do? They fall on their faces and they say, Yahweh is God. And then we get to the verse. I didn't look this up. But the verse that I doubt is in many of the children's stories of this. Because then Elijah says, round them up. All 450 of them and we're going to kill them right now. Whoa. This was kind of a great story. And then Elijah kind of went a little crazy, didn't he? I mean, like, kill them? I mean, aren't we supposed to have like this tolerance and this diversity of opinions and being welcoming? Well, yes, in a nation that's not a theocratic strait, that's a decent thing to have. But when you're in the nation of Israel that is under God's law, and it says in Deuteronomy 13 that those false prophets who lead you to worshiping idols, you should execute and tells us the wages of sin is death. And this is the right thing to do. You know, in essence, what is Elijah doing? He's calling these people to show, not just with their words, but with their actions. Are you going to continue to waffle between Baal and Yahweh? Or are you going to choose him? Because if you're going to follow the Lord, this is what it means. It means putting to death sin. And the Israelites obey. And they follow God's word. In essence here, Elijah is about to pray for rain, 
But he has to take care of the thing that's causing it not to rain. Their sin. And their need to return and follow the Lord. And we could draw so many important applications from this portion of the story. But let's just focus on three brief ones. Have you ever been told you're on the wrong side of history? What you think, what you believe, that's, history's moving on. I mean, it's 2021, people. Don't you know that we're past that? History's moving forward. Why are you holding on to these viewpoints? Well, for three years, five months, and 29 days, Elijah appeared to be on the wrong side of history. History's moving to Baalism, Elijah. Don't you get it? We've moved on past that stuff. This is where we're going. We're in this year. Why are you still following those old things? And yet the wrong side of history ended up being not serving Yahweh, but serving Baal. You, know, you don't need a sociologist. You don't need polls to let you know that our country is rapidly moving away from our Christian foundation. That the amount of people who went to church and the amount of people who profess to be Christians is plummeting. And people say, you're on the wrong side of history. It's 2021, folks. Don't you know what's going on? Come on, get with the times. And yet one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that day, it will look foolish to have followed the culture in 2021. Because one day, though it may, you may be the last one like Elijah, or like the hundred hiding, or like the one serving in the government, or probably many others. Though you're in the minority, you are in the majority in God's eyes. Because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And that is really the second thing. One day, there will be a clear demonstration of God's victory. Now, Jesus has already clearly won. You know, on the cross, there was no hidden factor. Like Elijah, God made clear. You know, Jesus wasn't crucified in some far-off corner. He was not buried in some remote place. He didn't rise from the dead, but not appear to anyone. No, he was clearly crucified. He was clearly dead. He was clearly risen from the dead. What did he say? See my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Clear evidence for all. And one day when he returns, all will see his victory. And the third quick application is I think this story points out the folly of idolatry. Now, I'm sure no one in here is struggling with afterwards, should I run up to the local idol temple and buy something and then I'm going to take it home and I'll give a little bit of my lunch to it and then I'll pray to it. And yet the Bible has a much deeper understanding of idolatry. It's not just a physical object. It can be that. But it can be anything that you turn to in which you say, I need this to have life. This is what makes today meaningful. This is what makes life worth it. We probably have all had the experience of one of my friends who confessed to me when I was in high school, I so wanted to be friends with these people up the street that I did anything they wanted. And the things I did and the things I let them do to me have harmed me for years. And yet he so wanted, 
them to be my friends, that he was willing to serve them. His idol led to his demise. And we maybe wouldn't go as far as my friend did, but might be other people to just that they will like me, if they'll just invite me, if they'll just be my friend. We could apply this to so many other areas. But every time, in the end, it'll be just like this story where no voice, no answer, no one paying attention. You may get it for a time, but even those friends will eventually go. And this story is reminding us of the folly of idolatry. And yet the story's not over because Elijah is now going to go pray for rain. And we see that in verses 41 through 46, the prayers. He tells Ahab, go eat and drink. And again, Ahab obeys. And then Elijah goes up farther to the top of Mount Carmel. And he stretches himself upon the earth. And he prays with his face between his knees, calling for God to send rain. And then he sends a servant to go look towards the sea. And the servant says, nothing. I don't see anything. So Elijah prays a second time. And he tells him to go look. And he says, I see nothing. So Elijah prays a third time. So he sends the servant, he looks. There's nothing there, Elijah. So Elijah prays a fourth time. He goes, go look. And the servant's beginning to go, you know what? There's nothing there. So Elijah prays a fifth time. And Elijah says, why don't you go look again? And he takes a deep breath, and he walks, and he turns around, he comes back, he goes, hey, you know Elijah? Just wanted to let you know there's nothing there. So Elijah prays a sixth time. And his servant's going, I know it's coming. Yes, you want me to go look if there's something on the sea. Yep, there's uh, nothing there, Elijah. I don't know if you are catching what I'm saying, but there's nothing there. So Elijah prays a seventh time. Yes, Elijah, I'll go. Uh, Actually, there's like a small fist of a cloud out there. And Elijah says, go at once. Go tell Ahab he better get in his chariot this minute and head back because the storms that are coming, if he doesn't get home before they come, he's not making it home. So Elijah, why did he keep praying? Well, because God promised. Verse 1 of chapter 18, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. It was the same promise from Deuteronomy that, Look, if you sin, I will take the rain, was if you return. I will re-send the rain. It's the prayer that Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, that when your people turn, will you send the rain? And it happens. And then God, in some way, empowers Elijah, so he runs faster before Ahab and beats him to Jezreel. Even with a chariot, Ahab can't win a competition. And this little portion of the story is really showing us three important aspects of prayer. First, one that we really have a hard time with, and that is God answers in his own timing. Yeah, we like the middle portion of the story where Elijah prays once and boom, fire. That's the type of prayers I want. I pray, it happens, I got my genie, rub it, oh, get what I want. Doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you haven't even prayed and you've been thinking, you know, it'd be really nice if this would happen and God does it. You didn't even pray and you go, wow. God is so merciful and gracious to me. And other times, 
You pray once and it happens, and other times you're thinking, well, seven, that's pretty low. I've prayed for that literally hundreds of times, and it hasn't happened. Why isn't God answered? Well, I don't know. But we see even in this story that God answers in different times. So keep trusting his promises. It might be like Elijah's servant that you keep going and looking and you go, nothing. And yet if God has promised it, it will come true. So keep praying. Second, notice the stark contrast that we've already briefly mentioned. And that is for Baal to be heard, his prophets, they have to be loud. They have to cut themselves. They have to dance. They're doing all these things. And what does Elijah do? He just simply prays. You know, there is a mystery in prayer. But one thing we see that it is ultimately the answers prayer, answers to prayer come from God's mercy, not our emotions. And we see this ultimately at the cross. Because there, God did demand the shedding of blood. But rather than demanding it from us, he put it on his son. You know, it's all God's mercy. Not our emotions, not our movements. That's the foundation for answered prayer. So when you cry out to God, call upon him because he's merciful. Not because you've been such a wonderful person. Your confident prayer is not in what you do for God, but what he has done for us. As we read earlier, Matthew 7, God is our good father. He doesn't have to be manipulated into blessing us. And yet third, and somewhat mysteriously, though I don't think a contradiction to what I just said, our holiness does matter in prayer. God said he'd send rain, but notice the rain didn't come till after Israel repented. In 1 Peter 3, Peter's instructing husbands how to love their wives, how to treat them. And then he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Or James 4, 2-3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So yes, our confidence in prayer is God's character, but that does not negate our need for personal righteousness. Proverbs 28, 9 says, If one turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so... We come to the Lord and sometimes he answers quickly and sometimes we pray for years. We come on his mercy and yet we know that in his mercy he calls us to turn. And so that we might live lives of holiness. And yet what is the main point of this story? I think the main point is the question that Elijah directs to them and I think Elijah directs to us. Who is God? Well, however you answer that, serve that. If you say in your head, well, it's not what that guy's been talking about up there for the last however long. Well, then why are you here? You're wasting your time. If this is not real, you're wasting your time. If it is real, then give your whole life to it. That's what Elijah's saying. Don't mess around. If this is real, then live like it. Give your life to it, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't just, oh, no, who is God? Well, Jesus, so I'm going to change the box. I check on that religious identification form. Oh, Christian. Well, who is God? Okay, well, Jesus, so I'm going to go to a religious event once a week. Check. That's not what he's calling us to. Who is God? Serve him. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, 
and strength. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are people who like to ride the fence. We do get divided and distracted emotions and desires. And so we ask, would you unify our hearts? For any who are unsure, Lord, would you help them to see the truth of your word, of the resurrection, and that they would see the truth, that they would know that you are God, and that they would follow you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.